following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Good morning. Great to see all of you who are here in the room and to know we've got a bunch more folks who are joining us online this morning. I just want to add my amen to Shannon's powerful words of lament. May we as followers of Jesus, be those who grieve with those who are grieving. May we dedicate ourselves to bringing hope and healing and justice in Jesus' name. If you have a Bible with you, or you can access it on the IBC mobile app, um, let's go to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be in Ephesians 4 and Philippians 3 this morning. And I wonder if anybody else remembers the fifth grade talent show. I don't know about you, I don't know about your experience, but in my experience at my school, the fifth grade talent show was a really big deal. I mean, the, the, the whole year sort of leading up to the fifth grade talent show. And uh, for those of you who are sort of imagining Pastor Barry, fifth grade, like I'm basically the same age as uh, the characters of Stranger Things back in the 80s, right? So you can imagine the whole, the whole scene, the whole vibe. Fifth grade talent show, I mean, my, my friend Dave played his violin. Uh, the girl that I had a crush on, Misty, did a dance to, uh, to the soundtrack from the movie Flash Dance, full-on leg warmers and everything. And um, the, like, the, the culmination of the whole thing was some of the cool kids did a lip sync uh, with real instruments to Motley Crue's Shout at the Devil. Right, it, it, it was a big deal, the fifth grade talent show. But I got to tell you, I, 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 was, I was struggling in the lead up to the fifth grade talent show. I was, I was sad and a little down on myself, quite frankly, because everybody's signing up for the talent show to put on display for everybody their talent. And I felt like I didn't have one. I didn't play the violin. I couldn't certainly do a dance or two. I mean, I, I, I had nothing. But thankfully, in the weeks leading up to the fifth grade talent show, Miss O'Rear, the, uh, the choir teacher who was responsible for the show, asked me to be the MC. And I don't know what it was that she saw in me, why she offered me that invitation, but she gave me the opportunity. And the big night came. And, and, and the cafetorium was full. <laughs> and I looked out on that room full of people. And I stepped up to the edge of the stage. And I just felt like I came alive. And, and I didn't really fully appreciate at the time how much that experience changed everything for me. You see, because... Because now, week after week, I get to look out on a room full of people, step up to the front of the stage, and I feel like I come alive. And it wasn't actually until I was into my 40s, before I really came to recognize and appreciate just how much that experience shaped me. You know, I think oftentimes we can find ourselves living in the present somewhat oblivious to the impact of the past. And yet I believe there is for all of us an opportunity, an opportunity to do some excavation into our story, to understand more fully who we are, who God has made us to be, what he has made us to do. 
that all of us have a backstory. All of us have been shaped by, we have become the people that we are through formative experiences and relationships in our past. And that as God does his formation work in our lives, making us more like Jesus, I think an important part of that process is excavating our backstory. We are this week in the third week of this sermon series called Deeper Still, where we're talking about the important connection between uh, becoming more spiritually, emotion, spiritually healthy and, and mature with being emotionally healthy and mature, that these two things are deeply interrelated. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, I would just really encourage you to go back and listen. You can uh, watch those videos on the, the, uh, the app or you can listen to the podcast. But this really kind of sets up not only this series, but in a lot of ways, what, what lies ahead for us as a church this year. We've said over the course of the last couple of weeks that that this year at Irving Bible Church, we want to go deeper in our discipleship to Jesus by focusing on deeper emotional and spiritual health and greater missional impact in the world. This year, we want to experience God's healing power in our own lives in fresh and deeper ways. And we want to invite those around us to experience that healing that Jesus came to bring. And last week, we talked about the part of that process for us involves knowing ourselves more deeply, coming to a deeper level of self-awareness. We talked about those words from John Calvin who says nearly all the wisdom that we possess consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. And which one precedes and brings forth the other is difficult to discern. That, that Calvin says knowing God deeply and knowing ourselves deeply are intertwined. That the more we come to know ourselves, the more we come to know God. And the more we come to know God, the more we come to know ourselves. And part of the way that we do that work of spiritual introspection is by looking back at our life story. In Ephesians 4, Paul addresses this process of, of deep inner transformation that God desires for each of us who are followers of Jesus. In the context here, he has spoken about that kind of default operating system of those who are far from God, that self-reliance and how that manifests itself in our life. But then we pick up in verse 20, and Paul says this. I'm in the wrong book. There we go. Ephesians 4, verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on your new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. God's desire for all of us is to put off the old and, and put on the new. We said last week that the old self is the false self. It's the way of life that we learned operating out of self-reliance. It's the habits, the patterns, the practices that we learned to rely on, to be okay in this messed up world, but that are ultimately not honoring to God and not healthy for us. We said the new self is the true self. It is who God made you to be. It's you fully alive and free. It's you when your heart and your life and your character is looking more and more like Jesus. And in order to take off the old and put on the new, we have to do this deep work of spiritual introspection. And I think part of that is coming more deeply to understand our story. Now, 
sometimes what happens is that we can live, as I suggested, sort of oblivious to the past impact on the present. And sometimes we even spiritualize that, right? Sometimes we, we think of the words of Paul who talks about forgetting the past. Well, I think we need to actually look a little bit more closely at what Paul says. So you can flip over just a few pages to Philippians chapter three. Philippians three is where we find these words about Paul uh, forgetting the past. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, I um, strain forward to what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. We say, there it is right there. Paul says, forget what lies behind. And yet we have to ask, well, what exactly is Paul suggesting that we leave behind? And that's what we find addressed in the context. If you go up just a few verses, back up to verse number seven, Paul says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've suffered the loss of all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul here is addressing any sense of self-righteousness that he might be able to claim on the basis of his religious achievements and pedigree. And Paul has strong words to address what that is that he is leaving behind. He says, I consider it garbage, is the NIV translation. What you need to know is that's sort of a, a little bit of a watered down translation of the Greek word that's here. Some translations actually render this, I consider it dung. And that's a little closer to the meaning of Paul's word. But but the force of Paul's word is actually, this is a coarse word in the first century world. Paul, it seems here, deliberately uses this kind of coarse word for, for shock value. I consider the word he uses is scubala. And scubala is a coarse word in the first century. Scubala is a word that, that if a, a little kid said it and they got caught by their sibling, they'd go running to mom and say, mom, uh, Samuel said the S word, right? It would be the sigma word in Greek, but you get the idea, right? It's a coarse word, scubala. Right? If you're one of those that maybe still sort of struggles from time to time with coarse talk, right? Maybe you're one of those who has the t-shirt that says, I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. Um, I now give you the word scubula as a good biblical alternative, okay? Now I'm gonna get some email from parents about that one now, right? Kids, you cannot go say, mom, that's a bunch of scubula, right? No, you cannot do that, okay? Pastor Barry didn't give you that permission. This is a coarse word, to make a point, all of that I consider scubala. What is it that he considers scubala? It is all his religious credentials and accomplishments. Anything that he might have claim on his own to put him in good standing with God. Any sense of self-righteousness, any claim to any righteousness at all other than the righteousness of Jesus that is given to him on the basis of faith, merely by trusting in what Christ has done for him. Now, none of this means that Paul forgets his backstory, that he forgets the experiences and relationships that have made him who he is. It means that what he leaves behind is any sense of his own 
right standing before God on the basis of what he has done. All of that is garbage. What we actually see is Paul oftentimes using his life story as a means to share the gospel. Pete Scazzaro captures this well in that book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, that I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago. Here's what Scazzaro says. He says, the work of growing in Christ, what theologians call sanctification, does not mean that we don't go back to the past as we press on to what God has for us. It actually demands that we go back in order to break free from unhealthy and destructive patterns that prevent us from loving ourselves and others as God designed. That we actually have to go back and do some of that excavation of our story as part of the process of taking off the old and putting on the new. Part of the process of God's transformative work of making us more and more like Jesus. And so what I wanna give you in the time that remains is a framework for engaging that. This is one of those sermons that kind of comes with homework, right? So some of this is not something that you can do right here, right now, but you have to take with you and engage in a process to, to carve out some time and have a journal and spend some time employing this framework. And, and this is something that isn't just sort of one time. This is something that, that can take a series of weeks, in some cases, months. And in many respects, it takes us years to come to fully realize and appreciate elements of our story. But this framework I want to give you is a framework that we have used with students at Dallas Seminary for years. I was a part of designing the curriculum for spiritual formation for Dallas Seminary students. And we've used this framework to help them excavate their stories for years. I've seen it over and over again be powerful in people's lives as they reflect on the chapters of their life using this framework. Now, I just want to tell you, for, for some, to do this work uh, may mean that you really need to do this work in community, to, to, to be together with trusted friends where you can process some of this together. For some, it may mean that you need to reach out to us and connect with one of our pastors who can help process this with you. And, and for some, it actually means that you need to probably see a, a, a counselor, a therapist who can help do some of this work with you and face some of those elements of your story that are difficult. But all of us have an opportunity to do this work and thereby to come to know ourselves more deeply and know God more deeply. So let me give you the framework. The framework just involves five H's, five H words that, that really allow us to do this excavation. Heritage, heroes, high points, hard times, and hand of God. And let me just walk you through each one and, and kind of talk about what that means and, and even how we see this on the pages of the Bible. So first of all, heritage. And for each of these, I've given you a question to prompt your reflection, right? Heritage, how has my family of origin shaped who I have become? Right? How has my family of origin shaped who I have become? What, what assets were you given from your family of origin? What liabilities and limitations? What patterns might you be repeating I mentioned to you a couple of weeks ago when Kim and I were doing premarital counseling, the, the pastor that did our counseling, he just kept talking about family of origin, family of origin, family of origin. We thought this guy's family of origin must have been a mess. And then we got married and we came to realize how important it is to think about your family of origin. We do things differently. 
What assets have you been given? What, what liabilities have you been given? What patterns might you be perpetuating? And you see this in families throughout the Bible. The book of Genesis tells the story of Abraham's family. And there are patterns that get repeated from one generation to another to another. In Abraham's family, you see a pattern of lying. Abraham has a couple of very prominent instances where he lies. And what you see in Isaac's life story is that he repeats his father's pattern to the point that by the time you get to Jacob, Jacob's name means deceiver, and he lies to everybody. The pattern of lying that gets repeated from one generation to the next. A pattern of favoritism in the family. You see it in each succeeding generation, a favorite child who gets treated differently that then leads to the repeating of a pattern of sibling rivalry. And it happens over and over and over. A pattern of messed up marriages. Abraham has a child with Hagar. And then you see this relationship between Isaac and Rebekah and ultimately then leads to um, Jacob's family, who's just a mess, right? It gets repeated from one generation to the next, to the next. How have I been shaped by my family of origin? My, my dad um, had an incredibly strong work ethic, right? I, I, I aspire to be like my dad when it comes to his work ethic, but... My dad could also be a workaholic, sometimes finding his identity bound up in his work, leading then at times to him being absent or being emotionally unavailable. And guess what? I got that in my game too. How have I been shaped by my family of origin? What assets have I been given? What liabilities? What patterns might I be repeating? Pete Scazzaro, the church that he pastored for years, uh, New Life Fellowship in New York, they have a little saying that captures the, the impact of this idea. They say, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones, right? <laughs> Some of that formation from our family is just deep down inside of it, us. And we've got to do the work to determine how we've been shaped. Heritage. Second, Heroes. Heroes, what significant figures have shaped me as a person and how? And what, what significant figures have shaped me as a person and, and how? And once again, you see this all over the place in the Bible where, where there is a model, there is a mentor, there is one who has gone before that, that then is looked up to. You see it with Moses and Joshua. You see it with Eli and Samuel, you see it with Elijah and Elisha. You see it with Naomi and Ruth. You see it with Elizabeth and with Mary. A model. My life is in large measure the sum total of the impact of six men. In fact, when I share my life story, if you were to hear it from start to finish, the way that I divide my life into chapters is based on the mentor figures in my life. I am, in many respects, the sum total of the impact of six men. Bill, Dave, Ralph, Steve, and the two Andes. Bill was my grandfather. My grandfather who lived on the farm outside the little town of Mark, Texas. And I spent a lot of time on the farm as a kid. And, and, and he was my hero. He was then and still, in many respects, is a model of the man that I wanted and still want 
to be. When I was about 15, my grandfather Bill passed away. And right at that time, God brought into my life Dave. Dave was my youth pastor. Dave led me to Christ, discipled me in the faith, and then mentored me in ministry for over a decade. It had a significant impact on me and my following Jesus, my call to ministry. And then there was Ralph. Ralph was my uh, college professor. And Ralph wasn't somebody who shared my faith. But there was something about Ralph and my relationship with him that, that sparked this sort of intellectual curiosity in me. And we would have these deep discussions. And, and despite the fact that he didn't share my faith, he shaped my faith in all kinds of really profound ways. And it's what birthed in me the sense of like, I might want to become a professor one day. And then there was Steve. Steve was my seminary professor. And he had all the same kind of intellectual rigor that Ralph had, but was a person who deeply shared my faith. And not only was he a brilliant scholar, but he also pastored me through the experience of losing my dad. He left Dallas Seminary to go to Wheaton College, and I followed him up to become his first doctoral student in the PhD program there. And Steve marked my life profoundly. And then there's the two Andes. Andy Seidel and Andy McQuitty. Andy Seidel was on the faculty at, at Dallas Seminary at the time. Andy McQuitty, the senior pastor of Irving Bible Church. And both of them were mentors to me in the sense of modeling so much of what I aspired to. But, but also, both of them opened up opportunities for me way before I was ready and allowed me the chance to grow into them. My life, in so many respects, is the sum total of the impact of six men. Who are the people who have marked your life? Who are the, are the people who have modeled for you what you aspire to become? How are you who you are because they are who they are? Your heritage, your heroes, third is high points. What experiences of joy, blessing, or success have marked my life and how, right? What experiences of joy, of blessing, or of some sense of success that have marked my life and how? These are those mountaintop experiences of our lives. Uh, this is the fifth grade talent show, stepping to the front of the stage and feeling like I came alive. And those moments oftentimes give you a clue as to really who God has made you to be, the impact that he's made you to have on the world, that there, there are those opportunities that you have a sense of connection with God because of his blessing in your life, and that's marked you. What are those experiences of high points that have made you who you are? Heritage, heroes, high points, and then third, hard times. Hard times. What experiences of pain, grief, or failure have shaped me, and how? This is Joseph being thrown into a pit by his brothers and then trafficked into slavery. This is David being confronted by Nathan and confessing his sin with Bathsheba. This is Jesus weeping at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. Those experiences of pain, of grief, or of, or of failure that have shaped us. I believe God does some of his most powerful formative work 
and some of our most painful experiences. And please don't misunderstand me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that God causes your pain in order to form you. That would be cruel. But God uses your pain to form you by meeting you in it, by carrying you through it, by giving you a deeper sense of empathy, compassion, and dependence on him. I had a, uh, a four-year period of my life that has made me, in so many respects, who I am. But it was a period of pain that just felt like it came in waves. It began with the, my dad's diagnosis with cancer. And uh, we knew from the beginning it was terminal. It was stage four. And my dad lived for about six months before he died of cancer. Right on the heels of that, my brother-in-law, the, the husband of my sister, my only sibling, had a mental and emotional breakdown and disappeared, abandoning my sister. Right on the heels of that, Dave, that youth pastor who had led me to Christ, discipled me in the faith, and mentored me in ministry for over a decade, the, probably the most important figure in my life outside of my family, died tragically in a car accident. Right on the heels of that, a kid from the youth ministry where I'd served as youth pastor two years before opened up to me about um, the sexual abuse he'd experienced by the pastor of that church over years. And I walked with that kid and that church through the devastating impact of that abuse. There was not only with that young man, but we came to find out was with another, a number of other young men in that ministry. Right on the heels of that, my grandmother, who I was very, very close to, was confined to a nursing home. And her mind gave out before her body did. And then I lost her too. And it was just this season, this compressed season of suffering where it just felt like the pain came in wave after wave after wave. And I'll tell you, I would do anything to undo all of that pain. Right? I would give anything to be able to text my dad and say, let's go have lunch. But I can tell you this, God used that experience to form me. Right? God met me in the middle of that pain. He carried me through it. And he's used it to give me an empathy and a compassion and a dependence on him. It has made me the, the man that I am, the husband that I am, the father that I am, the, the pastor that I am. God does some of his most powerful formative work and some of the most painful experiences of our lives as we meet him there and he carries us through and we learn to depend on him. Your heritage, your heroes, your high points, your hard times. And then finally, we look at all of this to see the hand of God. The questions are, how did I experience God in the events that have shaped me? How can I see his hand now in retrospect? And the answer to that first question may be, I didn't, right? I didn't see God in the middle of all that. I didn't know God in the middle of all that. I didn't experience God as I was going through all of that. But 
Oftentimes we can look back now and see the way in which he carried us through. The reason that we're told story after story after story about character after character after character in the Bible is so that we can learn to see the hand of God in the story of their lives. But have we learned to see the hand of God across the story of our lives? In one story after another, after another, after another, across the pages of the Bible, God was using the circumstances that they were going through to invite them into an ever-deepening relationship of trust. And if that's true, what makes you think, what makes me think that it's any different for us? God is using the circumstances of our lives to draw us into an ever-deepening relationship of trust. I think I've told some of you before about one of my most prized possessions. Right? If the, the house caught on fire, I'd be reaching for this. It's a journal of my dad's. And I love just to see his handwriting in it and to see things he was processing through. It's, it's interesting. Part of the, one of the journals that I have was uh, from when I was about 10 years old, right around that time of that fifth grade talent show. And uh, some of the things that my dad was thinking about processing, some quotes that he captured that he put into his journal. And uh, there's a quote in one of those journals that has meant so much to me. I don't know where it originated, but what's so powerful for me is that it's in my dad's hand. My dad wrote down, God is too kind to do anything cruel, too wise to make a mistake, and too deep to explain himself. In all of our circumstances, God is inviting us into an ever-deepening relationship of trust. We come to know God and to trust God as we see him in our story, as we trace his hand through the formative experiences and relationships of our lives. Looking back at our heritage, our heroes, our high points, and our hard times. Learning to see the hand of God. Friends, I, I believe that God is calling us as a church into deeper places of transformation, that beneath the surface kind of transformation. And for us to experience that individually and, and together requires us to cultivate this spiritual introspection. where We come to know ourselves more deeply and thereby come to know God more deeply. And part of the way for us to do that is by excavating our story. I want to just suggest to you once again, this is going to require some homework on your part. Some time set apart, some time with a journal to process through these prompts. It's a process that can take weeks, it can take months, and in many respects, takes years. It's a process that you probably should engage in trusted Christian community. And you might want to reach out to us and let us connect you with a pastor to help you process some of this. And for some, there is a really important step of connecting with a counselor, a therapist, in order to do some of this work. But I believe that as we do this work, we will experience transformation. That we will come to know ourselves more deeply and thereby come to know God more deeply. That we will learn more and more what it means to put off the old self and to put on the new. To put off the false self and put on the true.
Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning that we can uh, face you and face ourselves with confidence knowing that we are secure in your love. That allows us to, to do this work of spiritual introspection, knowing that we are held by you. And God, I pray that you would help us as your people to look at our lives, to examine our stories, and to learn to see your hand, to learn to see the way in which you've been writing the story of our lives, and the way in which you have uh, brought us into families that have shaped us, that you've given us models and mentors, that you have allowed us to have those high mountaintop experiences, and that even in our pain, you were there holding us and and getting us through. Lord, I pray that you help us to see your hand. And God, this morning as we come to communion, it's just that reminder of our security in your love because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And so because we know we are secure in your love, we can come before you and really take a look at ourselves. And so we pause now in this moment of silence to do some spiritual examination to see if there be anything there that we need to, to name before you this morning before we take these elements. And we thank you, Lord, for the truth of your word that reminds us that there is nothing, nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we thank you for these reminders of his love and the elements of communion. We pray all this in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.